Hi friends, this is Justin from Why Catholic. I really appreciate everyone who has donated to keep this podcast going. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if people could support this podcast, but also get something in return? So I created a Why Catholic merch shop. You can find it on Etsy. Just search for Why Catholic. And I've also linked to it in the show notes. These designs are 100% original. I wanted to make something that shares our faith, but also looks trendy. You can find t-shirts, hats, sweatshirts, and more. And I'm constantly adding to the store as well. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks so much for supporting Why Catholic. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. Just as a little background, I spent about 39 years of my life as a Protestant. I was a Baptist slash evangelical pastor for about 11 years. I co-founded a ministry called Christianity is Jewish, which focused on the Jewish roots of the faith. And at the age of 41, I came home to the Catholic Church. Since episode three, we've been mainly discussing the sacramental worldview as this is the foundation of Catholicism. We've talked about the sacraments of initiation, which included the Eucharist, baptism, and confirmation. We covered the sacraments of healing, which are reconciliation and anointing the sick. Then we went into the sacraments of service and spent a few episodes on marriage. Today, we begin the last of the seven sacraments, the sacrament of holy orders. As a definition, the sacrament of holy orders is the sacrament through which the mission entrusted by Christ to his apostles continues to be exercised in the church until the end of time. This is a sacrament of apostolic ministry. It includes three degrees, the episcopate, which is bishops, the presbyterate, which are priests, and the diaconate, which is deacons. To understand the Catholic idea of the priesthood, the apostolic ministry, and the sacrament of holy orders, we have to start by understanding the Jewish priesthood. And so, like we did with all the other sacraments, we're going to start our discussion on the sacrament by diving into the Jewish context. In this episode, I'm going to focus on three aspects of the Jewish priesthood, the qualifications, the functions, and the authority of the priesthood. Qualifications, functions, and authority. Let's begin with qualifications. We read in Exodus 40 that the Jewish priesthood was established on the first day of the first month of Israel's second year as a free people. The first priest was Moses' brother Aaron, and his sons were also ordained with him. How were they ordained? They were anointed with oil. Exodus 40, starting in verse 12, says, quote, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water, and put upon Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations, end quote. Leviticus 21 provides detailed rules for priests, including not defiling themselves, not marrying prostitutes, not shaving their heads or beards, and not having any disabilities. There's another distinction that Leviticus 21 spells out, and that is that there was to be a high or a chief priest. What we know from history is that there was only one high priest. In fact, in the book of Maccabees, we see a major conflict occur when the Assyrians ruled over Israel and the ruthless king Antiochus Epiphanes auctioned off the role of the high priest to the highest bidder. There was a battle for the role of the high priest that even led to one individual overtaking the role and forcing out the other high priest. The point is, there could only be one high priest. Numbers 18 further lays out that priests must, like Aaron, come from the tribe of Levi. 
Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. If you were born in the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or Reuben, you were not eligible to serve as a priest. Only male Levites could be priests. When Israel entered into the promised land, they divided the land and gave each tribe a piece of land. But guess who didn't get any land? The Levites. In Joshua 18, 7, God explains that, quote, the Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage, end quote. So if they didn't have any land, how would they survive? This is where the purpose of the tithe comes in. Israel gave 10% of their income, whether that was money, crops, or livestock, to the Levites for their religious service. What was the religious service? This brings us to the function of the Jewish priesthood. Now, before we can understand the role of the priests, we have to understand the tabernacle, which would later be replaced by a permanent temple built by King Solomon. If I asked you, what is the most important building in your country? Most would say the nation's capital building or uh, parliament. This is where lawmakers decide the future for the country. In Israel, this was not so. The most important building, the center of Israel's life was the temple. And before the temple was erected, It was the tabernacle. In fact, whenever scripture mentions someone going to the temple, it always uses the preposition up. It doesn't matter if they were traveling north, south, east, or west. To go to the temple is always to go up, always to ascend. The temple, which followed the same basic layout as the tabernacle, had two parts to it. There was the outer courts, and then there was the temple building itself. The outer courts and the temple building had a number of different sections to them. And the closer you got to the temple building, and specifically the innermost chamber in the temple, the more exclusive it became. The outer courts included the outermost area called the Court of the Gentiles, where all were welcome. A little closer to the temple building, Jewish women were welcome in the Court of Women. The court of men was one area beyond that still outside the temple building, excluded to Jewish men only. And then only priests could enter the priestly court, which was just outside the temple structure. Inside the temple, there were two sections. The larger was called the holy place. The innermost chamber was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And it was separated from the holy place by a tapestry about six inches thick. I've included a link in the show notes to a diagram of the tabernacle and to the temple. The Holy of Holies, that innermost chamber, was off limits to everyone except the high priest, and only he could enter once a year, specifically on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The most holy place contained two special artifacts. First, there was a rock called Even Shetiyah. In rabbinical tradition, this rock was the very place where God created the world. The Jewish people believed that this rock was the center of the earth. You may have heard of the celebration of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. In the Bible, it's also referred to as the Feast of Trumpets. Rosh Hashanah, like all the Levitical feasts, points back to a historical moment. Rosh Hashanah commemorates actually two historical events, the creation of the universe and Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice. They may seem unrelated until you understand that Isaac was laid on a rock on Mount Moriah. Where is Mount Moriah? It's in Jerusalem. It is believed that the very rock in the Holy of Holies, the Even Shetiyah, was not only the rock that was the starting point of creation, but it was the rock on which Abraham offered his son Isaac before God intervened and provided a ram caught by his horn in a thicket. 
This is why it's called the Feast of Trumpets, because the shofar, the ram's horn, was Israel's form of a trumpet. And so blowing the trumpet was a reminder of God's provision that day on Mount Moriah. Now, on top of that significant rock, the even Shetiyah, sat the Ark of the Covenant. I've talked about the Ark of the Covenant extensively in episode four. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should. The Ark of the Covenant was a gold rectangular box that contained the Ten Commandments, manna from the wilderness, and Aaron's budding staff. It was Israel's most sacred artifact. It was where God concentrated his presence. He told the high priest that he would meet him there in the most holy place on top of the atonement cover, also called the mercy seat. This was the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant that had two golden statues coming out of the cover in the form of angels facing each other with extended wings. The priest's role was to attend to the temple, lock it up, open it up, clean it, make sure it was never defiled, keep the lamps perpetually lit, make sacrifices for the people. And on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year, the role of the high priest was to offer a bull sacrifice, take blood from the sacrifice, walk up into the temple through the holy place and pass that curtain into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on top of the atonement cover, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which sat on the even Shetiyah. Just pause for a second and take in the significance of sprinkling blood from the animal sacrifice on the very spot where God provided a ram in Isaac's stead. Wow. But as much as a privilege it was to be the high priest assigned with this solemn duty, it was also terrifying. The priests were well aware that any misstep, any defilement of the temple could bring on sudden death. We actually read about the first instance of this with Aaron's two sons, Nabad and Abihu. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 states, quote, Now Nabad and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came forth from the presence of the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. I will show myself holy among those who are near me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. End quote. Yikes. God struck dead two of his original priests for burning unauthorized fire. Tradition has it that on Yom Kippur, the high priest would tie bells around the hem of his robe and tie a rope around his waist. His fellow priests would wait outside the curtain, and if they heard the bells stop jingling for a prolonged period of time, they would assume God struck the high priest dead, and they'd pull him out with a rope. No one would dare go into the Holy of Holies to retrieve the body. In Luke 1, we read about John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. Starting in verse 8, it says, quote, Now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, it fell to him by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. End quote. Why was Zechariah afraid when he saw the angel? Because he thought he was going to be struck dead for doing something improper like Nabad and Abihu. 
This brings us to the last part that I want to discuss, and that is the priest's authority. The priests were the intermediaries between God and the Jewish people. They were the ones who were charged with ensuring Israel followed God's laws for keeping the feast days holy, for providing animal sacrifices for the people, for giving religious instruction, for speaking on behalf of God to the people. We see this very clearly with Samuel, a strong leader who served as a prophet as well as a priest. It was during Samuel's time that Israel rejected God's theocracy and begged for a king, a monarchy like their neighboring countries had. It was originally the priest who not only had spiritual authority, but political authority as well. There was, by God's purposeful design, no separation between church and state in ancient Israel. But with the establishment of the monarchy, there was a shift. The king had political authority, while the high priest was the spiritual leader. Interestingly enough, at least initially, it was the priest's role not only to anoint the king and pronounce him as king, but to also select the king. Now, the kings and high priests didn't always get along. Consider the ruthless monarchs Ahab and his wife Jezebel that hunted down the priests and instead installed prophets to the false idol Baal in their place. Or as I mentioned earlier, Antiochus Epiphanes turned the role of the high priest into a bidding war and gave the position to whoever paid him the most. The monarchy was not God's design or desire for Israel. He didn't want them to be like any other country. In fact, in 1 Samuel 8-7, God told Samuel that the Jewish people's request for a king was specifically a rejection of him as their king. God was supposed to be king, and the high priest was like his prime minister, and the priesthood was akin to his court of advisors who carry out his law. I want you to listen to what Isaiah 22, 15 through 22 says. I'm going to break this down into two parts, the bad news, which is the curse, and then the good news, the restorative blessing. First, the bad news. This is a prophecy against King Hezekiah's secretary, a man named Shebna. Quote, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have honed a tomb for yourself, and who hew a tomb on the height and carve a habitation for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. O you strong man, he will seize firm hold of you and whirl you round and round and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your splendid chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be cast down from your station. Wowzers. Shebna is the head of the household. What is the household? It's the temple. Did you catch the references to the rock here as well? He was trying to carve a habitation for himself in the rock. What is the rock? It is the even Shetiah. Now let's get to the good news. This concerns one of King Hezekiah's other advisors named Eliakim. Starting in verse 20, it says, quote, On that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your girdle on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open, and I will fasten him like a peg in a sure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father house and they will hang on him the whole weight of his father's house the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons end quote 
What is God doing here? He's taking away the authority from Shebna and giving the keys to his house, which is the temple, to Eliakim. Eliakim, in a sense, is being promoted to the prime minister who carries out the authority of the king in the king's absence. The king here isn't just Hezekiah. It's really God who is king. Now, you may be thinking, this is all interesting, but what does this have to do with the Catholic Church and the Sacrament of Holy Orders? I want to turn your attention to Matthew 16, 13 through 19. Jesus took his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which had this giant rock cliff, and under the cliff were all these temples to false idols. It says, quote, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. End quote. Do you see the parallels between what God gave to Eliakim and what he gave to his disciples, particularly Peter? Notice the repetition of words like keys, the rock, and binding. In fact, Jesus repeats the authority of binding two chapters later in Matthew 18, 18 through 19, when he tells his disciples, quote, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, end quote. Jesus, in establishing his kingdom on earth, was also establishing a new authority. That authority would be placed on a rock, and the disciples would be given the keys and the authority to bind and to loosen, to shut and to open. We're going to talk about this a lot more when we get into the topic of St. Peter and the papacy in a few episodes. In the meantime, I've included a link in the show notes to an awesome explanation about this by Dr. Brian Petrie called The Jewish Roots of the Papacy, which goes into a lot more details than I've provided in this short episode. But let me leave you with this. The need for animal sacrifices was done away with at the crucifixion. Jesus became our ultimate sacrifice. Right when Jesus died, the temple tapestry tore from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies has been opened to all of us as well. However, that access doesn't negate the need for leadership and authority in God's kingdom. This is the purpose of holy orders. Just as God ordained and anointed the high priest and his fellow priests with the responsibility of leading his kingdom of Israel, so Jesus ordains his disciples with the responsibility of leading his kingdom here on earth. And just as the priesthood continued in the line of the Levites, so too does his apostolic authority and ministry continue in the order of bishops. That apostolic succession that continues to this day is our next topic in discussing the Sacrament of Orders. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. 
Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.